All right, so uh, just quick, quick review this morning. Uh, I think we're on week 18 or 19 of this apologetics series, and we spent the first roughly 10 to 12 weeks uh, trying to make a positive case for Christianity, and we laid out six different arguments. Uh, who can name all six? Anyone want to take a stab at it? We've done this like every week for 19 weeks. Okay, Russ, so bold. Cosmological. Cosmological. Teleological. Design. Design. Moral. Moral. Uh, resurrection. Okay. Yes, you got him. You got him. Yeah, very good. Okay. Russ, Russ gets a Bruise Bros gift card. That's worth, that's worth some coffee, Russ. Very good. Some good coffee. Okay. So, yeah, the cosmological argument, that's the uh, argument from origins. Uh, then we talked about the teleological argument, the argument from design. Um, and then we talked about the moral argument, the resurrection, the supernatural nature of Scripture. Uh, and then we spent a whole lecture talking about all the different experiences that we have had, answered prayer, um, uh, viewing exorcisms, hearing prophecy, um, having people know things about you that they, they couldn't possibly know apart from supernatural knowledge from the Holy Spirit. So all those things are best explained uh, from a theistic worldview. So there is good evidence to believe that Christianity is true. Then we uh, shifted gears and we began to, to talk about the most common objections to Christianity. Uh, and we talked about the problem of evil for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then we talked kind of broadly about science and faith. Uh, and there we argued that there's no contradiction at all between science and faith. As a matter of fact, uh, science grew up in the worldview or the milieu of um, Christianity. Uh, the scientific revolution really emerged out of the Reformation worldview of the 16th and 17th centuries. And then we argued a few weeks ago that, that all the greatest scientists, scientists, all the greatest pioneers of modern science were uh, passionately committed Christians. And then we began to talk about uh, some of the contemporary findings in science that point us to God, and we, we got through two of those, um, and, and we're basically going to review the other three in the next three weeks as we talk about the issue of evolution and creation. So we're going to spend three weeks specifically addressing this issue of evolution, uh, because for a lot of people, uh, evolution and Christianity uh, do not uh, go together. And we, we, would, we would say the same thing, that evolutionary and Christianity um, evolutionary theory and Christianity um, are diametrically opposed, but a lot of folks think that evolution has proven that God does not exist, and really nothing is further from the truth. So with that said, let me begin by describing a mythical person um, who is really an amalgamation of several people. Let's say his name is Matt. Matt grew up in a Christian home in Spokane, Washington. Uh, he went to church most Sundays, and then he decided to head off to Pullman and go to Wazoo, the Harvard of the Palouse. Go Kooks. In his first biology class, his professor stated emphatically that evolution is a fact. 
And then his sociology professor and his professor of history also stated emphatically that evolution is a fact. And Matt thought, man, all these really smart people believe that evolution is a fact. They all have PhDs. They've all published. Maybe what they're saying is true. By the middle of his senior year, he had converted to Darwinism because evolution seemed to make so much sense of nearly everything for Matt. It became for him a comprehensive worldview that made sense of all of life. Best-selling author Daniel Dennett describes evolution's far-reaching explanatory power when he writes this, describing his own conversion experience to Darwinism. Little did I realize that in a few years, I would encounter an idea, Darwin's idea, bearing an unmistakable likeness to, a, to universal acid. It eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview with most of, all, with most of the old landmarks still recognizable but transformed in fundamental ways. Evolution made God superfluous for Matt and Daniel Dennett. And within nine months, Matt stopped going to church altogether, and he had abandoned the Christianity of his roots. Julian Huxley, who was a 19th century scientist, says this, Darwin's real achievement was to remove the whole idea of God as the creator of organisms from the sphere of rational discussion. Several years later, Richard Dawkins, one of the four atheists, famous atheists, said this, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Furthermore, Dawkins believes that anyone who does not believe in evolution is an idiot. He writes this, <laughs> it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Now, how many of you have heard this kind of inflammatory rhetoric before? Okay? How many of you went to state schools like me? I went to Wazoo. Okay, I remember in, in Gen Ed, which was like, like a, a big Western Civ class with 500 students in the audience, the professor said, that we all know now that evolution is established fact. And she was a history professor, speaking outside of her discipline. But that, that's just kind of the mentality of so many people these days, just like, just like uh, Dawkins. The question is, are Dawkins, Huxley, and Daniel Dennett right? Should we embrace evolution? No. As a matter of fact, evolution is increasingly untenable for people who love science, whether it's chemistry, biology, or geology. Evolution, by the way, even if evolution is true, I often say to people that I'm talking with that are not Christians, okay, for a moment here, I will grant to you that evolution is true. I don't think that it is, but let's just pretend that it is. Even if it is true, you still have massive problems. Why? Yes, Jay. 
Okay, let's not get to that yet. Before we even get to that, what's that? Exactly. But, but even before that, that's, that's chemical evolution. We'll get to that in a moment. Where did planet Earth come from? <laughs> Where did that warm little pond in the prebiotic soup come from? Evolution cannot explain the origin of the universe or planet Earth or Darwin's little pond billions of years ago. So evolution, it's, it's philosophically nonsense to say that evolution gets rid of belief in God. Because all evolution is doing is explaining uh, how that warm little pond produced life. But it cannot explain why there is something and not nothing. Okay? Does that make sense? So for the sake of argument, I'll say to people, I'll, I'll grant that to you for a moment, but you still have significant philosophical problems that evolution cannot explain. And I'll come back to that again and again and again. So, what I want to do in the next three weeks, Lord willing, is I want to prove uh, that evolution should be rejected. So there's going to be really two, two portions um, of, over the next three weeks. So today, I want to define terms very carefully, and then I'm going to lay out nine reasons why I think we should reject evolutionary theory. We'll get, we'll get to maybe one of those this morning. Um, but it's really important for us to define our terms. What are we... What are we talking about when we're talking about evolution? So section one, defining evolution. Section two, critiquing evolution. So uh, let me say one more thing, by the way, of introduction. There are Christians who embrace evolution. And they're known as what? Theistic evolutionists. So that's a thing. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's you this morning. But I think theistic evolution has significant theological problems and significant scientific problems. But it is possible uh, to be a theistic evolutionist and uh, to get to heaven someday. But I, I think it has significant problems. And all the things I'm going to mention in the next three weeks are also a critique of theistic evolution, not just evolution. Because, again, I think it has significant scientific problems. Okay, so section one, we're going to define our terms, defining evolution. Now, unfortunately, defining evolution is rather challenging because that word evolution means different things to different people. And there are at least four definitions of evolution that I want to mention this morning. First, uh, evolution very simply refers to the fact that things change over time. Now, no one disagrees at this point on what I'm saying. Uh, as very, very, very basic sense, uh, evolution means that things change over time, and everyone agrees with that. But second, evolution sometimes refers to microevolution. Now, by the way, staunch Darwinists don't like this distinction between micro and macroevolution, but I think it is an important distinction to make. So, Microevolution teaches that minute changes within a species happen over time, which is why we have so many different breeds of dogs. There are some dogs that have really, really thick fur, some dogs that are huge, some dogs that are small, some dogs that survive in the Arctic, some dogs that survive in ladies' handbags. Okay, there's all types of dogs. But dogs remain dogs. They have not move to a new species. 
So for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, dog breeders have realized that within a species there can be pretty dramatic change. But it's never been proven that microevolution leads to macroevolution, that is, speciation or a new species. Referring to microevolution, one um, scholar says this, uh, this, ref this refers to small developments within one species, and that's the key, within one species, so that we see flies or mosquitoes becoming immune to insecticides, human beings growing taller, or different colors and varieties of roses being developed. Okay, again, not very controversial yet. Third definition, evolution sometimes refers to macroevolution. Macroevolution teaches that minute changes within a species over billions of years eventually leads to new species. Macroevolution is synonymous with the theory of evolution. Now, the National Association of Biology Teachers, NABT, MABT, describes the theory of evolution with these words. The diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution, an unpredictable and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modifications that is affected by natural selection, chance, historical contingencies, and changing environments. Natural selection has no specific direction or goal, including survival of species. And we'll come back to this definition in much more detail in a moment here. Uh, another scholar kind of sums up evolutionary theory, how it all works, uh, with this paragraph. He says this, In modern Darwinian evolutionary theory, the history of the development of life began when a mix of chemicals present on earth spontaneously produced a very simple, probably one-celled life form. This is Darwin's warm little pond that supposedly happened billions of years ago. This living cell reproduced itself, and eventually there were some mutations or differences in the new cells produced. These mutations led to the development of more and more complex life forms. A hostile environment meant that many of them would perish, but those that were better suited to their environment would survive and multiply. Thus, nature exercised a process of natural selection in which the differing organisms most fitted to the environment survived. More and more mutations eventually developed into more and more varieties of living things so that from very simplest organisms, all the complex life forms on earth eventually developed through this process of random mutation and natural selection. So the theory of macroevolution teaches that all life forms, when I say all, I mean all, trees, octopuses, giraffes, tarantulas, humans, whales, birds, all life forms developed from one single-celled organism billions of years ago in Darwin's warm little pond. And over billions and billions of years, natural selection has identified a functional advantage in that particular species leading to new species over time. Stop and think about that for a moment. <laughs> That's crazy. Literally, the millions of species on planet Earth and all their complexity supposedly evolved from one single-celled organism 
billions of years ago. Now, for a lot of people, what I'm saying makes a lot of sense only if you have billions and billions and billions of years to work with. But as I'll say later on, even billions and billions of years is not enough to create the diversity of life we currently have on planet Earth. But that's the basic theory in a nutshell, is that over time, uh, natural selection, which is nothing, it's not a thing, it's just, it's not even a process, but natural selection um, identifies in species a functional advantage which eventually leads to a new species over time, over billions and billions of years. So that's the, that's the basic theory. I'm sure many of you have, have heard this before uh, in high school science or junior high science classes. Um, speaking of natural selection, Daniel Dennett writes this. Uh, this was Darwin's great idea. Not the idea of evolution, but the idea of evolution by natural selection. Darwin believed that natural selection, not God, is responsible for every living thing on planet Earth. And again, what exactly is natural selection? Natural selection is nothing. In other words, it's a blind, unguided, and purposeless process. But even to use the word process is misleading. That describes the survival of the fittest. Some animals survive because of their advantageous traits, such, such traits are passed on to their offspring, allowing them to survive. Eventually, given enough time and chance and mutations, new species emerge. And the randomness of natural selection led paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson to write. Now, now consider, consider the philosophical implications of these words. He says this, man is the result of a purposeless, and natural process that did not have him in mind. If that's true, life is utterly meaningless. And there is no basis whatsoever for any kind of objective morality or purpose in life. Why not go out and rob and rape and pillage and steal? And if what he's saying is true, why is racism wrong? Why? To survival of the fittest. If a certain race is fitter, they should survive and everyone else should perish if evolution is true. So this worldview is incredibly hopeless uh, and it leads to all kinds of immorality eventually as it goes unchecked. Now, until the end of the 19th century, natural selection drove the theory of evolution. But eventually, scientists realized that natural selection was not enough to explain the incredible diversity of life on planet Earth. So something else was needed, besides natural selection, to, uh, to cause the incredible diversity of life we see on planet Earth. And that's where um, the groundbreaking work of Gregor Mendel came along. Who is Gregor Mendel? We talked about him two weeks ago. Anyone know? Gregor Mendel. Yes. Yeah, so he, he's the father of what discipline? Genetics. Genetics. And he was a theist, so uh, he was a good guy. But his groundbreaking work in genetics radically changed the way that scientists think about evolution. 
So because of the work of, of Gregor Mendel, we have the fourth definition of, of, of evolution, and that is the neo-Darwinian synthesis. And what most Darwinists teach now is that natural selection and working with genetic mutations, those two things together, are what uh, cause the incredible diversity of life on planet Earth. So it's natural selection acting with genetic mutations because of the work of Gregor Mendel that, again, that causes uh, the, the extreme diversity of life on planet Earth. So, that's, so nowadays when people talk about neo-Darwinism or Darwinism, what they mean is those two things acting together, natural selection and genetic mutations. One author writes this, neo-Darwinism became the reigning paradigm for most of the 20th century, and that's, again, due to the work of Gregor Mendel. So when I use the term neo-Darwinism, I'm referring to what most people today refer to as evolution uh, or Darwinism. And again, be clear, neo-Darwinism argues that natural selection and genetic mutations work together to create new species. Now, just a little uh, hint of what's to come. What, what is wrong with that whole idea of mutations leading to more and more diversity of life. What's wrong with that? Are most mutations good or bad? Bad. Bad. And we'll cover that in much more detail later. Okay? So there are, there are significant problems scientifically with the neo-Darwinian synthesis. Okay. No. Now that I have um, defined terms, let me provide some critique. But before I do that, uh, any questions on those four definitions? So microevolution, macroevolution, Darwinism and, and the neo-Darwinian synthesis, which is basically what's the reigning paradigm today, natural selection working with genetic mutations to create new life. Yes, Mark. Okay, a comment. Um, I, I, I may get to that later. That would take me pretty far off field now. But, but it is, Mark's asking basically, the question is, how do we define species? Because that, that's a really a significant question in this whole debate. Is, yeah, how elastic is that term species? What, what exactly is a species? Um, and uh, there's actually, a, there's a great discussion of that in this book by Jonathan Wells which I'll mention in, in a moment here, where he really tries to define species and that term speciation. So if, if I don't get to that eventually in the next three, three weeks, bring it up again. Okay, other questions that I'm not gonna answer. Yes, Joey. So uh, Joey's question is, did Darwin have a, men a mental illness when he wrote all this? Um, <laughs> that'd be convenient. Uh, he, he did, I, I'm pretty sure his daughter died when he was, when he was pretty young. Um, and that really affected him. And, and, I, and people speculated that, that that event, that suffering, drove him away from God. Which is understandable. So there, there should be some compassion um, so, so, so Darwin, Darwin did not uh, uh, deny theism until later in his life. So he tried to hold on to theism for a while, uh, but I think his suffering and his theory eventually drove him away from theism. It's a good question, Joey. Other questions? Okay. 
let's uh, talk about um, the first problem. Again, there's gonna, I'm going to mention nine problems. The first problem is simply this, and this is the most significant problem in my humble but accurate opinion. That was a joke. Someone laughed over here. Thank you for laughing. Appreciate that. Problem one, evolution cannot explain the origin of life. So I, I, I mentioned four definitions. There's really, there's really five because when it comes to neo-Darwinism, there's two types of evolution, chemical evolution and biological evolution. Okay, what's the difference? Anyone know? What's, what is chemical evolution referring to? Isaac, I think you mentioned it earlier. From non-life, yeah. So chemical evolution is dealing specifically with the issue of how did we get life from non-life in Darwin's little pond billions of years ago? Biological evolution is dealing with what? Yeah, how life advanced and how we got new species, okay? So this first critique is dealing with, very specifically, the issue of chemical evolution, and again, this deals with the uh, creation of the first life forms. Most of us were taught in school that life emerged from non-life billions of years ago in the prebiotic soup when a lightning bolt struck that prebiotic soup. Now, tell me, for a gift card, who's the famous scientist, actually there are two of them, in the 50s who put forward this theory and um, created a hypothesis for this. Anyone know? Yuri and? It starts with an M. You're close. Anyone know? You guys all heard this in high school science. Yes, Koi. Koi. Come on. Well, is it possible to have too much coffee? No, it's not. <laughs> okay. Here. Come get it. So the Stanley Miller experiment, so it was Miller and Yuri who developed this experiment. Sorry to make you walk up here, Coy. Is it worth it? Okay, good, good, good. He loves coffee, okay. All right. Um, how, how, many of you, how many of you heard about this in high school science, the Stanley Miller experiment? Raise your hand. Really? Junior high? College? Really, yeah. So when, when, I, when I was in high school, this was the reigning paradigm, but it has significant problems. Okay, so um, in 1953, Stanley Miller proved, quote, chemical evolution when he created amino acids by charging a test tube with electricity. And there's a, there's a picture here of his experiment. Uh, you can kind of see, it's a little hard to read, uh, but you've got the power supply, that's the lightning uh, and then you have, you have Earth's primitive oceans on the far left. That's Darwin's warm little pond. And supposedly, uh, that um, explosion of lightning hitting that pond created life. Now, there are several hugely significant problems with this. I'm going to mention three. First, Chemical evolution must be rejected since the atmospheric conditions in Earth's earliest history were much more hostile to life than Miller and Urey ever anticipated. Uh, Lee Strobel writes this. Science Magazine, not exactly a bastion of Christian orthodoxy, 
said in 1995 that experts now dismiss Miller's experiment because the early atmosphere looked nothing like the Miller-Urey simulation. And again, even if what he's saying is true, uh, even if evolution began at this point, you still have to explain where planet Earth came from, where the lightning came from, where the warm little pond came from. Evolution only has to do with living things, um, which is why I can't explain the origin of the universe. So the, the conditions put forward by Miller and Urey were nothing like Earth's early atmosphere. It was much more hostile, we know now, uh, to life than they predicted. Second, chemical evolution should be rejected because non-living things cannot produce information. For a long time, scientists assumed that the earliest life on planet Earth was very simple, that is, non-complex. Okay, Darwin put forward uh, this, this idea that early life was protoplasm. What's protoplasm? Anyone know what protoplasm is, that word protoplasm? What, what did Darwin mean by that? Just like, just like a very simple mush or jelly. That's how Darwin viewed uh, uh, these, these early conditions or early life on planet Earth. As a result, it seemed plausible that the earliest life forms of, uh, could have emerged from non-living chemicals. But wow, times have changed dramatically. Uh, one scholar says this, what we once thought was a simple membrane surrounding some gooey protoplasm was now seen to contain an astonishing universe within itself, a staggering agglomeration of intertwined parts performing stunningly complex functions. Even the membrane was outrageously sophisticated, being perfectly watertight until it somehow chose to allow something in or out and then did so. The more science learned, the more clear it became that a single cell was anything but simple. And the more it became obvious that something so impossibly sophisticated did not appear to have come into existence by chance. Already in 1978, the evolutionist and Cambridge zoologist W.H. Thorpe said that even the most elementary type of cell constitutes a mechanism unimaginably more complex than any machine yet thought up, let alone constructed by man. <laughs> so what Darwin thought was just some jelly early cells, we now know are incredibly complex universes within themselves with incredibly sophisticated machinery and massive amounts of information. So the more we learn about these, these, uh, the cell, the more chemical evolution seems to be utterly impossible. We now know that even the simplest life forms cannot be produced without following incredibly complex instructions from their DNA. Uh, Norm, Go Norm Geisler says this, uh, staunch Darwinist Richard Dawkins, professor of zoology at Oxford University, admits that the message found in just the cell, nucleus of a tiny ame amoeba, is more than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica combined. And the entire amoeba has as much information in its DNA as 1,000 complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. In other words, if you were to spell out all the ATCG 
In the unjustly called primitive amoeba, as Dawkins describes it, the letters would fill 1,000 complete sets of an encyclopedia. So the amount of information in the DNA of these simple cells is overwhelming. Over 1,000 sets of encyclopedias. And keep in mind that those encyclopedias are, all the words are arranged in a very, very important, intelligent way. If just one letter is off, then the words are nonsense. There's no instructions and nothing can be built in the DNA. <laughs> Not one letter is out of order. If constructing the sentence, can you do the dishes please, important sentence in our family, if that requires intelligence, then how much more intelligence is required in 1,000 sets, complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica? The same amount of information required to construct one single-celled amoeba. And again, this is staggering. To think that that warm little pond sloshing around billions of years ago somehow created a MacBook Pro or a Boeing 747. That's nonsense. But one cell is far more complex than a MacBook Pro. Far more coding, far more information than a MacBook Pro. And so you're literally saying that that sloshing around in some lightning created a MacBook Pro? Ah, that's nonsense. Ray, yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if one of those is out of order, you've got, you've got mutations. You've got massive problems. No, no production. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, amazing. I mean, there's, there's clearly evidence there of specified complexity, design, information, and we all know that information comes from where? Intelligence. There's not one example in the universe of information coming from non-intelligence, but the information that Ray just described in cyanobacteria is an overwhelmingly amount of lots of information plus highly organized information. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. 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 
right? Right. 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 Yeah, and if that's true, Steve, there's no difference between me and a rock and an ant and a mountain. So there's no basis at all for any kind of objective morality or purpose. Right, right. And, and, and a much deeper philosophical question is, how, how in the world do you go from non-consciousness to consciousness and from non-life to life? That's such a massive philosophical leap. Like at what point did, did those cells evolve enough to eventually create humans and then all of a sudden there was consciousness and life? Um, evolution cannot explain that. Okay, uh, I, Steve, I'm going to quote from um, the guy you mentioned, Anthony Flew. Is that who you're thinking of? Yeah, Anthony Flew. I'll quote from him in a moment here. Um, okay, so again, believing in chemical evolution is like believing that an explosion, or maybe thousands of explosions in a row at a paper factory, paper and ink factory, was responsible for the creation of 1,000 encyclopedia sets. But even if evolution can explain this, again, they can't explain the origin of the factory and the ink and the paper. They still have problems. Or it's as crazy as believing that after billions of years, some chemicals sloshing around in a pond created a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini that, by the way, can talk and think. Human beings. <laughs> Wow, thank you for that awesome 80s reference. <laughs> Wasn't that David Hasselhoff? Wasn't, yes, yes. Fantastic. Well, that was wonderful. I, that was fantastic. Um, I always think now, like, all the Tesla cars are like Knight Rider. They can go in silent mode all the time. It's amazing. I digress. Okay, consider the, this ridiculousness. Considering this ridiculousness, Anthony Flew writes this, who Steve was mentioning earlier. Um, how do merely physical and mechanical forces, forces without mind and without consciousness, give rise to the world of purposes, thoughts, and moral projects? How can a universe of mindless matter, think about that, a universe of mindless matter, produce beings with intrinsic ends and self-replication capabilities. So Anthony Flew, by the way, uh, was one of the 20th century's greatest atheists. Uh, and he was converted to theism because of the fine-tuning argument towards the end of his life. Uh, and he, I, I don't know if he became a Christian, but he definitely became a theist. Let me mention um, the third problem with chemical evolution. So, 
just review a little bit here. So the first problem is uh, chemical evolution should be rejected because the atmospheric conditions in Earth's earliest history were much more hostile to life than Mil Miller and Urey believed. Second, uh, chemical evolution should be rejected because non-living things cannot produce information. And then third, chemical evolution must be rejected because it's so spectacularly improbable. The massive amount of information stored in the DNA of the simplest life forms makes it highly improbable that this information was created by chance. How improbable, Dave, are we talking about? One scholar writes this, Dr. James Copage, an expert in the study of statistical probability, has calculated that the likelihood of a single protein molecule being arranged by chance is one in 10 to the 161st power. Now, how big is that number? There are 10 to the 80th or 85th power atoms in the universe. I don't know who figures that, but someone has figured that out. But the point here is that it is mathematically impossible for all that information to be created by chance. There's just too much information organized too carefully. Well, maybe 10 to 161st means little to you. How about an illustration from the junkyard? Dr. Fred Hoyle says this. He claimed the the, the, that the probability of life arising on earth by purely natural means without special divine aid is less than the probability that a flight-worthy Boeing 747 should be assembled by a hurricane roaring through a junkyard. And then world-class physicist Paul Davies writes this. It is possible to perform rough calculations of the probability that the endless breakup and reforming of the soup's complex molecules would lead to a small virus after billions of years. Well, what are the odds? <laughs> Davies writes, one chance in over 10 to the 2 millionth power. In other words, utterly impossible. Eric Metaxas writes this, this is a mind-numbing number, which put more simply would be harder to achieve than just happening to flip heads on a coin six million times in a row. If someone did that, what would you think? It's rigged. <laughs> it's fixed. There's design behind that. Six million times in a row? For anyone who has flipped heads on a coin 10 times in a row, try it, you get the idea. Davies concludes by saying, the spontaneous generation of life by random molecular shuffling is ludicrously improbable event. Okay, so let me summarize. Again, we're, we're merely critiquing at this point chemical evolution. And that is the process of Life emerging, emerging from non-life in the early prebiotic conditions of planet Earth billions of years ago. And what are the problems with this? The earliest atmospheric conditions, the complexity of life, and the laws of probability rule out chemical evolution as an explanation for the origins of life. Leading evolutionary biologist Massimo Peglucio writes... We really don't have a clue how life originated on Earth by natural means. This problem is a hugely significant problem for evolutionists, and they admit it freely. And it's becoming more and more and more of a problem as time marches on and we see how, how complex 
cells are. The Darwinist Paul Davies wrote, wrote this. Again, these guys are both Darwinists. Um, all attempts at formulating a materialistic theory of the origin of life have failed, and not from a lack of trying. The problems are so great that evolutionists are getting desperate. Richard Dawkins, who I've mentioned many times, um, has, pro- has proposed a theory called panspermia, which I've mentioned many times in here. What is panspermia? What does that word literally mean? Seeds everywhere, all seeds, okay? So Richard Dawkins recognizes that chemical evolution is a massive problem, so he says that somehow either aliens or some kind of comet seeded life here billions and billions of years ago. Is this science? It's science fiction. Where's the evidence for that? Yeah, where'd the comet come from? <laughs> exactly. Where'd the spaceship come from? It just, yeah, exactly. It just kicks the can down the road. But it's a, it's a desperate attempt by Dawkins to get away from the theistic implications. And I've also mentioned in here uh, a few times James Tour. Uh, James Tour is literally one of the world's leading chemists. He's at Rice University. He's a pioneer in nanotechnology. He's developing right now microscopic little robots that go inside your body and fix things. Uh, he has over 50 patents. Um, he was named uh, by Science Magazine as one of the greatest scientists alive these days. He, he, he basically, uh, he's a research professor at Rice, and his job is essentially building molecules or cells. So of all people, he understands the incredible complexity of cells. Uh, and Eric Metaxas writes this. It's kind of a long quote, but it's really helpful. Um, he says this, Tour, James Tour, knows as much about the art of creating molecules as anyone because he, he's trying to do it in the lab with medical applications. He flatly states that what Miller and Urey suggested in 1952 didn't solve anything. In fact, he says, it's far worse than that. It's not just that we haven't moved the ball forward since 1952, but in the seven decades since, we have not only not drawn closer to understanding what happened, but have actually moved much further away, that is, from solving this problem of chemical evolution. The more we have learned about this subject, the more we have actually been able to see that what looked so easy and so tantalizing, close to 1952, is in fact far beyond anything we ever dreamt. It's as if we were aiming at a target in 1952, assuming we would over time get better at aiming. But as we have been focused on aiming, the target has been moving further and further and further away. In other words, we're seeing how incredibly complex uh, early life was or, or cellular life is. By now, it's on the other side of the universe, and the idea of hitting it is simply no longer conceivable, even to the most dedicated marksman. What we have learned in these seven decades is that what we have been trying to do is almost certainly much harder than we originally thought. So there's one of the world's leading um, chemists saying that chemical evolution is becoming even more and more and more of a problem for Darwinists. Now again, we're just talking about chemical evolution. We haven't even gotten to biological evolution. The biological evolution is dependent on chemical evolution. If there is no chemical evolution, biological evolution is impossible. 
Because biological evolution depends on chemical evolution to get going. Does that make sense? So, so chemical evolution is what creates the first life in theory, and from that first life, Darwin argues that all life um, has emerged. So at this point, chemical evolution poses a massive problem for Darwinists. And the more we learn about uh, the cellular complexity and DNA and genetics, uh, the more it becomes a problem uh, for evolutionists. Okay, um, let me pause here for questions and comments. And if I get stumped, I'm going to call on Ray or Terry or Coy. Yes, Russ. Nice and loud. Yeah. 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 Right. 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 Yeah, and, and of all people, Tour is the world's leading expert on this topic. And he and he's a very devout evangelical. Uh someone else. I think it was yeah. Uh, it depends on who you're talking to. It depends if you're young earth or old earth. But they both existed. We know that much. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm going to... I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the fossil record in great detail next week. And I'm going to talk specifically about Lucy and Piltdown Man uh, and all the aberrations of those, th that supposed fossil evidence for evolution. So come, come back next week to be determined. And, and, I, and I, would, I, I love talking about fossils because what is science based on, first and foremost? Observation, right? So... If evolution is true, we should be observing millions of transitional species in the fossil record. That really is the only evidence that, that there really could be for evolution, is fossils. But I'm going to argue next week, there is zero evidence for evolution in the fossil record. In fact, the Cambrian explosion dis dismantles evolutionary theory. Um, so I, I think, really, that's the only argument you need, is the fossil record. Because again, if science is based on observation, you have to make observations, and the observations should be in the fossil record. And we'll, we'll cover that in, in great detail. And I have, I have lots of fantastic quotes from evolutionary paleontologists who admit there's no evidence in the fossil record for evolution. Okay, uh, I think there were other, yes, Emma. Yeah. 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 It, it, it seems like the most plausible explanation, in my opinion, is that the, a worldwide global flood destroyed most of the dinosaurs. That seems to make the most sense to me, biblically. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I think that's what most people would argue. 
Yeah, right. 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 But it's really a factor of how you use it. And the factor of using it is actually maybe the real reason why you use it. Right. And that's Stephen Meyer's book, Signature in the Cell. His whole book argues basically that, that uh, information in DNA, that specified complexity, organized information, the ATCG, th that can only be explained by an intelligent designer because we all know intuitively that, that intelligence has to produce information. Um, yeah, if you, if, you were, if you were walking down a jungle path, and you saw written in bananas in the path, caution, quicksand ahead, would you think, oh, that must have been caused by the wind and the rain. I'm going to ignore that and keep walking. Is that what you would think? No. What would you think? Some intelligent person put that there because we all recognize that's information. Yet... The, the, the DNA in a cell is far, far, far more complicated than caution, quicksand ahead. Yet we think that somehow that evolved by chance? It's utter nonsense. Uh, other questions? Yeah. Was that a question, Terry? Yeah. 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 I've seen this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And and the question for Dawkins is where did that planet come from? You know? Like where where did all that stuff come from? So so one one thing one thing we have to have to realize here in talking to our uh, atheistic materialistic friends is that they a lot of them are assuming that you can't bring God into the science equation. But ask them, why not? If science is based on observation, and we all observe in life that intelligence produces information, then why can't we hypothesize that a super intelligent being created all of life on planet Earth? So there's this pre-commitment to naturalism by most evolutionists that makes this conversation really challenging. Because no matter where the evidence leads, they refuse to go there. And Romans 1 says what? That all of us know that God exists because of creation, but what do we do? 
We suppress the truth about God because, because we love our sin and don't want to submit to anybody. And that's often what drives people like Dawkins and Dennett and others as they're just suppressing the truth. It's very, very clear that what we see around us was the product of an intelligent designer. But they're suppressing the truth because they love their sin. Comment, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you got to pray. You got to pray a lot. You got to pray. Yeah, and I and I I I hope this class is not only equipping you to talk to your friends, but I hope it's also reminding you that there are really really good reasons to believe the Bible's trustworthy and true. Uh, Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. There is plenty of evidence from science, from genetics, from chemistry, from biology that God is real, that God exists. Um, so it's, it's good and right and rational for us to believe uh, that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, with that, we got to stop because it's 945. But next week, we'll, we'll jump into problem two, uh, and that is the fossil record. So let me, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. And I do pray that you would bring us all back next week to continue this conversation. And Lord, now as we, as we move into singing and prayer and preaching and the sacraments, we pray that you would pour out your rich blessings on us. Fill us with your spirit and allow us to experience your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.